0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com.
2: Hey everyone, today we're going to talk about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and as you know, um, we've been really focusing on gastrointestinal topics because we have uh, a new program that we're launching called Gut Health Solving the Puzzle where we where I teach you how to go through and evaluate your own gastrointestinal system. If you go to drknews.com, you'll see a link to find out more about the course and we're, we're gonna be um, doing a pre-launch for the course and people who have signed up to get information about the course earlier will get sig- significant uh, savings and promotional um, items. So if you have any interest in in going through our online course about how to evaluate and and, uh, learn strategies to support your gastrointestinal tract and gut symptoms, then please uh, go to Dr. K News and sign in for Gut Health, Solving the Puzzle, and be on that list. Okay, so let's talk about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. This is one of the key things that you have to understand if you're dealing with gastrointestinal conditions. And small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is one of these conditions that has become really popular in the internet and it's being misdiagnosed. People are just all assuming that any kind of bloating or distension is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And there's been you know a lot of uh, misinformation about the topic and uh, some confusion about it. Now, the key thing you have to understand, the main cause of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is really not... Is really it's a bit confusing the, the the term of of the condition. When you hear small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it's almost like um, you're thinking that either there's an infection in that small intestine or there's an opportunity where bacteria has overgrown. But really, the best way to think about it is that it's small um, bacterial small intestine bacterial translocation. So the way it works is you have back, you have uh, different bacterial species in your small intestine and your large intestine. And in the small intestine, you, sh- you don't have much bacteria. Major- majority of your bacteria is in the large intestine. You have hundreds of millions of bacteria in the large intestine, only a few hundred thousand uh, bacterial species um, uh, per deciliter of fluid when they when they evaluate, uh, I'm sorry, per milliliter of fluid when they evaluate to determine the amount of growth. So we're talking about this big difference in bacterial population, the small intestine, large intestine. Most of the Bacteria, the microbiome is all in the large intestine. The small intestine has has a a very small amount of of bacterial species. So what happens in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is that bacteria uh, that's in the large intestine moves across along the ileocecal valve, the valve that separates the large and small intestine into the small intestine. And this bacteria that's in the small intestine is very, very prone, is, is, is there to ferment and, and digest starches and sugars. And when that bacteria is in the small intestine, when people eat um, foods that are high in starch, fibers, fructans, galactans, um, uh, they like a significant bloating and distension. Now, that fermentation normally happens in the colon. It's no problem. But when it happens in the small intestine, it causes significant discomfort, bloating, uh, even nausea. For some people, so one of the key things that's essential for even considering if you actually have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is that do you have abdominal discomfort and bloating, and this it's pretty rapid. It's within the first uh, you know few minutes, um, five, ten minutes, sometimes even even immediately after you eat like anything that's very starchy, any kind of simple sugar. Um, Sweets, even probiotics uh, can really be a trigger for some people, or prebiotics, any kind of fiber source. So typically fibers and sugars and starches, um, things like legumes, uh, really high sugary fruit like grapes, watermelon, they tend to be the most common triggers for um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, grains uh, like rice, quinoa, tapioca, they're they're. Um, going to really promote bloating distension right away when people have this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And then there are um, what are called fructan-containing vegetables. And these are things like lettuce and cabbage and beets and asparagus and mushrooms. They also have um, this reaction with this bacteria that's known in the small intestine from large intestine leading to bloating and distension. So... If you, if you have bloating and distension, these are all things to consider. Now, however, you should know that not all bloating and distension is SIBO, and this is where a lot of misinformation comes with, and this is where a lot of people get confusion about it. Like a lot of people that have been diagnosed with SIBO, like self-diagnosed or internet-diagnosed, um, really have a gallbladder issue, and any kind of, and it's really the fats that they can't digest, causing uh, bloating and distension. Some people have hypochloridia. Where they just uh, don't have enough hydrochloric acid to break down proteins. Um, some people have pancreatic enzyme deficiencies. Some people have um, mechanisms um, where their motility is significantly compromised. That's leading to these imbalances. So you have to you have to really understand that not all bloating and distension is small tons bacterial overgrowth. However, if you're just eating any kind of simple sugar or, or any kind of high fruit and you're always bloated and distended, and one of the key differences is when, you know, for me as a clinician, when I hear a patient come in and tell me, yeah, it's um, anything I eat, I get like, feel like I'm pregnant. I feel like all of a sudden my abdomen is distended and it's really, really uncomfortable. If that is something that is happening to you then it's it's likely that you may have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now what I want to do is uh you know also get into like the prevalence and 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 causes and what to do about it and so forth. But one of the key things is if you have bloating distension one of the most important things you can use for diagnosis is to do a, a challenge with a FODMAP diet. Now Let's talk about how placebo is diagnosed. So the first thing is uh, you have bloating distension really with just any kind of sugary, fibery type of food, grains um, also, right? any of those foods. So if you get blood and sten- detention of all those foods, the conventional approach is to do two two major types of tests in a, in a gastroenterology model. One is to do aspiration of the gut and, and measure the amount of bacterial species in the small intestine, do a bacterial culture. That has its limitations. It's also very, it's invasive. It's an invasive test that requires you to go in. They have to... Uh, aspirate bacteria and put in a culture from small intestine and not all bacteria grow there and uh, you know it, has, it, has, it's, it can be used to diagnose small bacterial overgrowth. Another form of test that's commonly used to diagnose small bacterial overgrowth is what they call a breath test and in this breath test they measure two different gases one is hydrogen and one is methane and methane or hydrogen levels, uh, if either one of those are up, um, they can signic- they, they can suggest that a person has small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's some problems with those as well, with it, that, that test as well. Not all people that have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or have bacteria that's now in their small intestine have bacterial species that release methane or hydrogen. So if you have bacteria in your gut, in your small intestine, that is releasing... Uh, Other types of gases, um, that's not going to show up on this methane hydrogen breath test. Also, uh, we know that people that have increased gastrointestinal motility and have like frequent bowel movements, uh, their increased motility may actually uh, cause false negatives with the test. So if the bowel's moving very, very quickly, there may not be measurable amounts of of gas to cause um, a positive test, even though they may have SIBO. So those are the two standard approaches, either aspiration or breath test that's used in conventional gastroenterology to diagnose small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, and they, and if they're positive, then this strongly suggests that that you may be suffering from small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. However, sometimes the best thing to do is just to do a, a, a diet called a FODMAP diet. And the FODMAP diet, F-O-D-M-A-P, stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyps. And um, that's what the FODMAP stands for. So basically, uh, what you do in this diet is you remove these FODMAP substances, F being fermentable, and then O being oligosaccharide disaccharide monosaccharide o d m and those are just simple sugars so oligosaccharide is is few monosaccharide so monosaccharide is a simple sugar a uh, disaccharide is two two sugars together and oligosaccharide is just a few monosaccharides put together basically they're looking at um, short chain carbohydrates and they also in the p part of FODMAP is for polyols polyols or um Polyols are basically um, carbohydrate, uh, sugar, or basically sugar alcohols. And these types of simple sugars are easily, um, they, they really promote fermentation with this bacteria. That's where you get the gas and the bloating and distension. So the FODMAP diet is you remove all those foods. And one of the ways to really confirm if you actually have... Um, SIBO is to do a very strict FODMAP diet for about ten days, preferably maybe two weeks, and if you if you notice your bloating, gas, and distension are resolved, it strongly suggests that you actually have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So, in a sense, um, one of the best ways to determine if you actually have um, SIBO is to determine if you if you actually feel better when you avoid the foods that. Cause fermentation when bacteria from the large intestine move into the small intestine. Now, if you have a, a positive response there, then the next thing to really think about is where are you in the spectrum of clinical presentations? So, the SIBO can can get really serious. Some people with SIBO will end up with significant health problems, and then some people will just have some mild bloating and distention. Now. First of all, if you have SIBO, it's a red flag that you have some serious issues going on with your gastrointestinal system, Um, and we'll talk about those in a second. But it it is not, even if you just have a little bit of bloating and distention, you need to really address it and figure out what's going on and find the mechanisms because it can progress. So when you look at the spectrum of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, you um, you basically have some people that just have very mild bloating and distention whenever they eat Foods that contain these simple carbohydrate sugars, then it progresses to developing some malnutrition from it. So the physiological mechanism of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth are going to then lead into um, nutrient micronutrient deficiencies. These include um, your basic B vitamins, iron. So you start to see iron deficiencies, um, B vitamin deficiencies, mineral deficiencies. You also start to get deficiencies in things like vitamin D. Like uh, You may never be able to change your vitamin D levels if you're taking vitamin D with SIBO because of the malabsorption issues. Um, you may just start to develop um, nutrient deficiencies if you measure them with a red blood cell uh test to look at nutrient levels there it's common to be low and then if it progresses and then it gets to the point where your nutritional deficiencies may then lead into anemias um, like iron deficiency anemias b12 anemia deficiencies and that's just the progression of the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth causing malabsorption so that's the biggest issue with the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that it, that it can really lead into malabsorption and malnutrition syndromes and then it, if, if if it progresses from anemia, what happens with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is that it can start to start to impact what are called albumin levels and globulin levels. Albumin levels are proteins that you have in your bloodstream. Um, that are made in the liver. But albumin is involved with really controlling your osmotic pressure, so you don't have swelling. And when, pe- when you- people develop very severe patterns of SIBO, they'll actually get edema throughout their body and swelling, really swollen ankles, really swollen face. Uh, If it impacts their globulin levels, which is another protein, globulins make immunoglobulins or antibodies. They get severe immune compromise. It can impact hemoglobin, which is another globulin. So they can get severe anemias that don't respond to B12 or iron. And then the thermal absorption patterns get worse. You start to see the total cholesterol levels drop on their lab tests. uh, White blood cells start to drop. And they really become a um, significantly... Malnourished uh, person, then suffering from malabsorption syndrome, and then they can actually have significant weight loss, and uh, it can so it can go down the spectrum from just general bloating and distension to very severe symptoms. And what that means to you is that if you have, um, you know, some bloating and distension, and you go on a FODMAP diet and the, and your symptoms go away, first of all, you have SIBO. If it continues to get worse, you may end up with some significant malnutrition, malabsorption patterns. Um, uh, as the as the condition itself tends to progress. Now, you should know that uh, when you look at like what causes SIBO and look at the severity of SIBO and all the things that are involved with it, um, there are several key things you should know. Now, when you look at people that are prone to getting SIBO and what the mechanisms are, first of all, if you don't have enough, the easiest and most common mechanism is, not most common, but but common. Uh, is that you, you have a person that just doesn't have enough hydrochloric acid. So people that are on protein pump inhibitors, they tend to end up getting cell intestinal bacterial overgrowth. People that have anything that's impacting the nervous system of the gut, which is called the enteric nervous system. So when you look at your the gastrointestinal tract, um, the gastrointestinal tract has nerve plexus that cause your intestines smooth muscles to constrict, and to move and to move food. And they also close, close down the ileocecal valve, the valve that separates the small intestine from the large intestine. And if the gastrointestinal nervous system, also called the enteric nervous system, starts to dysfunction, then what you start to have is you have inability to close the valve between the small and the large intestine so bacterial properties can go through. And then if the smooth muscles are not contracting well, then bacteria starts to move from the large intestine to the small intestine. And that's all part of a gastrointestinal nervous system dysfunction. Now, sometimes it's further up. Um, The input to the gut happens from the brain to the vagus. So people that have traumatic brain injuries um, start to develop small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Their brain injury tends to cause what's called vagal dysfunction or dysautonomia, and they can't activate their vagus, so they can't control their ileocecal valve. They can't uh, control their smooth muscle contractions very effectively, and they end up with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now, um, there's also the possibility of having severe immune compromise of the gut to uh, cause SIBO, but when we talk about severe immune compromise, we're talking about things like HIV. We're not talking about just like uh, you have a low SIGA count when you do a digestive stool analysis. It's got to be pretty significant. So we know that you need to have, so basically when you look at developing SIBO, basically what's happening is either you're not acidifying your gut because you're not releasing hydrochloric acid. There's something wrong with the gastrointestinal nervous system. These are called migrating motor complexes, the nerve plexus in the gut. Or there's lack of input from your brain, uh, the brain to the gut. And and then those are some of the key mechanisms. Now, we know that SIBO, uh, when they when they do studies with patients that have confirmed celiac disease, about 10% of patients with celiac disease have SIBO. Um, we know about 15% of the, just the general elderly population of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We know that when patients go on an acid medication, hi, um, 50% of them end up with um, uh SIBO-like symptoms because of the acid. Some studies have shown up to 80% of people that have been diagnosed and confirmed with irritable bowel syndrome have some degree of SIBO. 90% of like um, confirms uh, alcoholics that are dealing with alcoholism have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And part of that is because alcohol itself destroys the nerve plexus. So now let's go into the underlying mechanism. So if you have SIBO, <clears throat> the first thing to remember is like, why do you have it? The easiest solution is like you're taking protein pump inhibitors and that's the cause and if you stop taking those you get better this the second easy treatment to it is you just don't have enough hydrochloric acid so that'd be another way to determine if you have any issues with it is if you if you can take hydrochloric acid um, as a digestive supplement and all your bloating distension symptoms go away then that was probably the main cause now the deeper question is and the more troublesome issues is what are some of these things coming from and what's happening with them. So the first thing to think about, what could be destroying the enteric nervous plex, nerve plexus in the gut? So what you need to know is that chronic intestinal inflammation is going to injure the gut, and it's going to injure the nerves in the gut, and it's going to cause scarring in the gut. So people that have celiac disease for a long time they can completely destroy their gut nervous system over many, many years. And this is also why some people that have celiac or have severe intestinal inflammation, they don't really manage it very well and they don't really take it seriously. You know, there is some anatomy that's destroyed in in the inflammatory response. So just just as a simple concept, chronic, chronic intestinal inflammation, whether it's an inflammatory bowel disease or it's ulcerative colitis or Crohn's uh, or celiac disease, is going to start to damage and injure the gastrointestinal nerve plexus. So that's one of the major causes of, of developing SIBO. People that have uncontrolled diabetes, if you look at their lab test, HbA1c levels are very high. The uh, glycated end products, when sugar uh, is when sugar levels are high, um, they bind uh, to other uh, compounds in the body and create free radicals, which then destroy. Uh, tissues, so when you have high amounts of uh, these glycated end products or the free radicals from uncontrolled diabetes, that starts to destroy the gastrointestinal nervous system. Pancreatitis, um, chronic pancreatitis, can destroy the gastrointestinal nervous system. So uh, these are the the first things that you have to think about. Like, why did why did a person develop SIBO? What are the causes for that? Now, um, the other key things that are also very common is is that. Early neurodegenerative diseases, especially Parkinson's disease. So, Parkinson's disease is a, a neurodegenerative disease called an alpha synucleinopathy, where this protein called alpha synuclein builds up and it gets in the way of normal transmission of neurons, and then this would causes the neurodegenerative process. But this alpha synucleinopathy starts in the gut sometimes 10 to 20 years earlier before it gets into the brain, and one of the earliest manifestations of that is SIBO. So, some people actually have SIBO because they have early Parkinson's disease and they don't even know yet. Now remember, most people think of Parkinson's disease, and think of tremor, but tremor is one of the last stages of Parkinson's disease. So one of, in the early stages of Parkinson's disease, people lose uh, their sense of smell because this alpha-synuclein protein buildup builds up in an area of the brain called the olfactory bulbs, they can't smell well, and also takes place in their gut nervous system, their enteric nervous system. So, you know, if you have SIBO, you got to make sure you don't have really Parkinsonian disease, Parkinson's syndrome. And your biggest clues of that is this muscle stiffness, muscle rigidity, hand cramping. Um, start to write and you start getting hand cramping. Uh, stiffness is usually in one limb first, like the arm first, like a frozen shoulder or like a really frozen hip. Um, and then it progresses to other tissues. And then, and then constipation. When people start to develop Parkinson's disease um, and they start to have this neurodegenerative process take place in their gut, um, this nerve plexus in the gut starts to degenerate and they have some issues. So a lot of times, you know, when you see SIBO, one of the first things that we're actually thinking about is, you know, do they have, especially if they're, you know, 35 or older, uh, do they have early Parkinson's early signs of early Parkinson's disease? Parkinson's disease, any, any Parkinson's, Parkinsonism in their family tree? Um, those would be all some concerns. Now, some people, get SIBO because they had radiation therapy um, to treat a cancer and, and that destroyed their gut nerve plexus. So that's another possibility. Some people had surgery that changed their anatomy of their gut. So now they have SIBO. Another overlooked cause of small testobacterial overgrowth is hypothyroidism. Some people um, are hypothyroid. And uh, thyroid hormones are important to activate the migrating motor complexes and nerve plexus in the gut. And they also activate the vagus. So those are the the main things that are involved with it. So kind of to, let me recap and make it simple and then kind of go through the process. And and by the way, if you take the um, course we're launching in a few weeks, the um, Gut Health Solving the Puzzle course, we're gonna really get into, teach you how to dip all the different GI conditions for yourself and how to go through it. But let's go over some of the basics of the SIBO, since that's the topic today. So if you have bloating, distension with any kind of basic sugars, carbohydrates, fibers, one of the best ways, easiest ways, inexpensive ways to really determine if um, you uh, might have SIBO is to go on a FODMAP diet. You can just Google FODMAP diet. There's lots of free available information online. It was a diet developed by Monash University um, in Australia. That is very very effective, and if you if you res, if you respond and your symptoms go away on a FODMAP diet for seven you know seven ten ten to ten to fourteen days, you notice a big change there. Um, and you, the key thing is you have to do this diet very very strict, uh, be very very strict with your diet to make sure the diagnosis is correct. If you're lazy with your diet, you might think the FODMAP diet's not part of it. It's a lot, and, it's, and I've seen that a lot. You have to be very very strict with the FODMAP diet if you're using it for diagnostic purposes. And if your symptoms go away, then you know you have SIBO. Then the next question is, why do you have it? If you're not on protein pump inhibitors, if you're not hypothyroid, um, and it's not related to hydrochloric acid issues, now you're worried about a neurodegenerative disease or chronic inflammatory issues that are causing scarring or maybe past injury to your nerve plexus from radiation therapy um, or things like that. So those are the underlying mechanisms. Now. What do you do if you treat it? What if you do when do you have it? How do you treat it? In conventional, in conventional treatments, they'll use an antibiotic type of therapy. Um, Rifaxamine is the most common one. It's an antibiotic that's not absorbed very well, so it's very effective for SIBO. And then they may even give the patient what are called prokinetic drugs. Prokinetic drugs are drugs that activate the small intestines. They get small intestinal contractions. But what they find is, you know, over 90 percent some studies show up to 98 percent of people that get the conventional treatment have to get treatment more than once and ongoing because it doesn't really treat the underlying condition it just stops the over it just kills the bacteria that's in the small intestine within a short period of time they come back so it's it's one of these things that if you have injury to those nerve plexus then you're kind of dealing with what you have and you're trying to optimize that function now um One of the most important things to consider when you have this is you have to start taking um, short-chain fatty acids. Uh, So butyrate is a very important supplement. And since you, if you, if you have to go on a FODMAP diet, um, the uh, your body is not going to be able to to have fiber to impact the gut. And one of the things that fiber does is fiber gets metabolized by gut bacteria to short-chain fatty acids. And these short-chain fatty acids have major impacts on on immune function in the gut. They activate regulatory T-cells. They impact dendritic cells. They have an impact on um, receptors that control blood sugar levels. So you definitely want to get your short-chain fatty acids um, from a supplement since you can't get them from fiber because fiber causes a problem. You also want to make sure you you adhere and are strict with a FODMAP diet because here's the thing. If you have SIBO and you eat foods that cause bloating and distension, um, so let's say you just really like watermelon, you just, well, you know, you get some bloating with watermelon, but you're still happy eating it. Um, every time you get bloating and distension, the ileocecal valve, the valve between the small and large intestine, that bloating and distension opens up that valve, which then causes more translocation of bacteria. So you have to realize if you're really trying to get your health back with SIBO, maybe you have malnutrition, malabsorption, you have to really adhere to the FODMAP diet and make sure you have no bloating distension. Every time you have bloating distension, you open up the valve between the small and large intestine from that distension, which causes more translocation, so you really have a hard time fixing it. Um, you can also use you know, very common naturally antibacterial um, Uh, compounds that are available, like berberine is a very common antibacterial. Olive leaf extract uh, is a common thing people use. Taking digestive enzymes is really important uh, as a basic concept. And many people that have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, the inflammation in the small intestine from this bacterial species there will lead to leaky gut intestinal permeability. So this is an ongoing issue. with being very strict with the diet, making sure you're a colon to get some short-chain fatty acids, ongoing leaky gut issues, and trying to control this to the point it doesn't really cause malnutrition, malabsorption issues. So those are like the basic fundamental concepts about um, SIBO that I can share with you just in a Facebook setting in our our, um, Gut Health Solving the Puzzle course. I have charts and diagrams and um, recipes and menus for you to follow and, and, and go through it. But with the, with the limitation of live Facebook, that's, that's, that's kind of the covering the gist of, of those things. And, um, I've got my wonderful wife, uh, here, Dr. Andreas, Hi. to help me. And if you guys have sent us some questions, we can go over those. And, and by the way, thank you all for joining in. And it's really, uh, it's really nice to have this community, um, to, uh, share information. With.
0: Okay. So let's get into it. Okay. Um, Tamara is asking, how does SIBO feed slash create candida? Does it?
2: Well, yeah, the thing with, so first of all, candida is a normal yeast species of the large intestine. Mm-hmm. And just like bacteria can translocate over, um, you know, yeast species can translate over into the small intestine and they're very prone to um, being, uh, leading to fermentation with any kind of sugar exposure, which leads to bloating and distension. So, part of it is just the mechanism of bacteria moving across the small intestine, also, yeast species go across the large intestine, and this makes it very sensitive to sugar. Uh, when you, you know, people that have it, that are very sensitive to sugar. But, other part of it is that with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, there is some significant um, environmental changes in the gut that actually lead to weakened immune function in the gut. And that weakened immune function can also then lead to uh, overgrowth of uh, yeast organisms, not just in the small intestine, but in the large intestine. So it kind of adds more to what's already difficult, which is an extreme sensitivity to any kind of sugars in the diet. Okay. Um, Susan,
0: how can you tell the difference between gallbladder issues versus SIBO?
2: Yeah, so your biggest clinical tell between a gallbladder issue and SIBO is that it's fat versus sugar. So, um, and some, some meals have both, so it's hard to d- determine which one really triggered it. But if you just eat, let's say, um, something that's very fatty, like just let's say olive oil, <laughs> a teaspoon of olive oil, or you take a fish oil and you get immediately bloated and distended, that's a sign that's really a gallbladder component and has nothing to do with SIBO. And a lot of people get misdiagnosed with SIBO with gallbladder issues. Yeah. So that's that's the key thing. The key thing with SIBO is it's really these short chain carbohydrates. Short chain carbohydrates are very prone to fermentation, so that's where uh, fibers, grains, simple sugars are the key diagnostic thing. So if you're eating just a simple sugar and you get bloating and you have no problem with fats, it's most likely SIBO. If sugars don't really cause a problem for you and it's really just the fact that there's a problem, it's more likely gallbladder. And guess what? Some people have both. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a very real thing as well.
0: Okay. So Sarah is saying, I have been on a low FODMAP diet for probably too long, but don't know what to do because I can't function otherwise. Right, Despite many tries with antibiotics, like what did like what people, what did they do?
2: Listen, if, if you have SIBO and your enteric nervous system is damaged, your health is going to be improved staying on a FODMAP diet. It's just that simple. Now the question to ask, first of all, just there's some things you can do to, to, to completely reverse the SIBO, and, and there's some conditions that you that have caused destruction of these nerve plexus. So it's it's hard to you know reverse it. So if you have SIBO, make sure you don't have hypothyroidism, make sure you get a lab test, check your TSH, make sure that's not high. Make sure you don't have hypochlorhydria, which is low hydrochloric acid. Um, most common cause of H of hypochlorhydria is just an H. pylori infection, so make sure you don't have an H. pylori infection hypochlorhydria type of pattern, or just takes the HCLC if that gets rid of the symptoms, and if it doesn't, then you gotta go, well, why do you have it? So do you have uncontrolled diabetes? Does that need to be handled? Um, do you have celiac disease or an inflammatory gut issue that's led to scarring? If that's the case, and you really have damaged those nerve plexes, um, you have to you have to stick to a FODMAP diet. And if you don't, you're going to get, you can have some significant malnutrition, malabsorption issues. That's one of the, that's the key thing. And you gotta make sure you don't have really signs of neurodegenerative disease like Parkinsonia because that's, because placebo is one of the, it's a very common way for early Parkinson's disease to present in, in a clinical setting. So um, it gets overlooked by all types of health professionals all the time. So those are the deeper questions, but if you have this unfortunate pattern of having your nerve plexus injured from some underlying mechanism, um, that's an issue. Now, the other thing we talked about in the, in the Gut Health Solving the Puzzle course is we talk about doing vagal exercises, uh, such as gargling. Gargling will activate your vagus to activate your enteric nerve plexus because uh, at some sense, your smooth muscles and your gut need activation to stay healthy and contract. So we go over lots of different vagal exercises um, in the gut health Solving the puzzle program, but the easiest and most common one to do is just to take some water and gargle with it. And when you gargle with water, the back of your throat, you have these muscles called palp muscles and they start to contract. And when they start to um, fire and contract, you actually fire what's called the vagal motor nuclei in your brainstem and that fires into the gut nervous system and gets those gut plexus to work. So you can try to really do a lot of vagal exercises, see if that can, can help you get more plasticity and develop activity in your gut. But, you know, there are definitely people that have to stay on a FODMAP diet to avoid malnutrition absorption patterns because of injury and scarring of their migrating motor complexes in their gut. Right. But if
0: it's not just, they have to also explore other avenues, making yeah. sure it's, there are not other things involved as well.
2: Right. So exactly. once, you, once you get diagnosed, figure out like, why do you have it is the next big part of it. Right.
0: Okay. That's, I think, the question people are asking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Susan, how do I start the veggie mashup if I am uh, sensitive to all vegetables? Uh, bloating, head fog, gas, like what, what do I right. do? Right.
2: So the veggie, the veggie mashup that we talked about to support immune tolerance, cause microbiome diversity is contraindicated if you have SIBO that actually will make you worse because you're going to expose yourself to a lot of fermentable <laughs> food sources. Um, now, the goal of the the goal of the veggie mashup is to give your give your gut fermentable food sources, so you can make more bacterial species, yes. which has major benefits in health and, has, and and can really impact you know what's known as microbiome diversity. Um, but if you have if you have uh, if you have SIBO it would, it would be a bad idea because what you do with when you have a veggie mashup with SIBO is you'll actually cause significant fermentation, and this fermentation process with these bacteria also creates inflammatory responses, oxidative stress. You'll start to break down your tongue junctions, you get leaky gut, the bloating and distension will open up your valve more, so you have more bacteria coming in, and then it can really promote and perpetuate a um, malnutrition, malabsorption syndrome. So the veggie mashup is, is not allowed. It's contraindicated when people have SIBO. Um, but one again, one of the things we mentioned earlier, one of the most important things you can do and you should do if you have SIBO, especially if it's long-term that you have to follow the FODMAP diet, you really want to make sure you take some s- supplemental butyrate. So butyrate is tolerable with SIBO and butyrate is what your gut bacteria would normally produce with fiber. And butyrate will have a very protective effect on your gut to help uh, resynthesize tight junctions, that's been shown in two studies right now, has a major impact in dampening inflammation in the gut as well.
0: Okay, Um, so people are asking, would there be any like CBC or blood test indicators to identify SIBO?
2: Yes, so so first of all, it depends how progressed the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth syndrome is. In early SIBO, there's going to be nothing on a on a general blood test that's going to show signs of it. As they as you, as you as a person gets more progressed, it depends on what markers were done on a complete blood work. Um, most common panel is the CBC. Uh, that was the order that you get ordered when you do a general health workup. Um, if you get to the point where you have SIBO that's now progressed into malnutrition, malabsorption, malnutrition, you're going to start to see. Um, well, if it's malnutrition, you're not going to see anything about the CBC, but you might see something like homocysteine if it's measured being abnormal uh, on a normal, or your vitamin D levels if they measured could be abnormal. Those would be some clues that you have some malnutrition syndrome. If it gets to the point where you start to get malabsorption issues that are, when you're crossing the line from malnutrition to malabsorption, you start to develop anemia. So that's when you start to see hemoglobin, hematocrit, RBC levels that are a little bit low. And if it progresses from there, you can see the total cholesterol drop. And the worst scenario is if you look at a marker on a blood work called albumin or globulin, if those levels are low, you've got some serious malabsorption uh, concerns at that point. But most patterns of SIBO will not be diagnosed with routine lab work. Most patterns of and many patterns of SIBO won't even be diagnosed properly with the the endoscopic aspiration with bacterial culturology, which is used and breath test because they don't, there's limitation of those as well. So again, one of the best tests to use to diagnose your SIBO is to just do a FODMAP diet for, let's say, one to two weeks, preferably up to two weeks, and see if your symptoms improve. And make sure you're very strict during it for diagnostic reasons. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay,
2: next question. Sure.
0: Um, Marsha's asking, old DCs, chiropractors, used to adjust open ileocecal valves, right? Yeah. Do you, is that a thing? What do you think about that? What's No,
2: that's not gonna have any impact. Okay. Listen, uh, it's beyond that. We're talking about injury to the nerve plexus. We're not talking about like ileocecal valve. So so let me explain a couple things. For people that do, aren't familiar with this, um, people do visceral manipulation. Visceral manipulation can be done different ways. Sometimes people do it with actually touching the gut and and moving the valve and contracting it. and sometimes people have reflex points. Different techniques used to activate the iliocecal valve or reflex points. Um, there's a whole bunch of different uh, body work therapies that are out there to impact the valve. And, and they they for some people if they get visceral manip- visceral mm-hmm. massage, they're they're going to stretch their smooth muscles, of their gut. That's going to activate the nerve plexes, and they may get some relief in their gas and bloating yeah. um, for a period of time. Maybe it's maybe it's 20 minutes. Maybe it's two days. So those type of treatments can activate um, the gut to some degree. It is, but it's not reversing scarring or injury to the motor right. complexes. So um, if you have severe bloating distension, you may even want to look at visceral manipulation and gut, you know, gut massage and things like that. Maybe you learn to do it yourself also. And that might give you some relief from distension and bloating by stretching out those gut smooth muscles and causing some activation there but it's it's not going to it's not going to cause it's not going to treat the underlying Mm -hmm. issue it'll just be kind of used for relief care for some people
0: okay so chris is asked saying i've heard two different theories on improving SIBO. okay one is crowding out the overgrowth with healthy pre pre probiotics yeah the other is using antimicrobials first then replacing with probiotics do you have an opinion
2: on either of those? Yeah. So first of all, using a high amount of probiotics, which ones? Because you don't know what you're getting. Uh, people that have SIBO will react to probiotics. It's just that simple. So they'll react to the majority of them. So which one are you using? Uh, and you may actually make the condition worse doing that. And at the end of the day, you haven't treated the underlying issue. The underlying issue is bacteria from large intestine moving into the small intestine. So it's it's it, it, if you're lucky, you may get some benefits with that. And, and no way to know unless you do trial and error, right? So you could you could try that, and try to take a high amount of probiotics and see if that can change the microenvironment. But it's very unlikely to make a significant difference. Okay, not to say it's not possible; it's just not very likely. And the other issue was to like treat it with antimicrobial agents first. Well, treatments with antimicrobial agents, uh, whether it's antibiotics or some natural agents, do give symptom relief. Um, So whether you're using your amoxifen as an antibiotic uh, for your treatment, or you're using natural compounds like berberine and olive leaf extract and garlic extract and other things that have natural antibacterial antimicrobial activities, those things do help with the symptoms of bloating and distension. So uh, they can be very useful.
0: Okay. Michael's asking, how does scarring occur to the motor plexus?
2: So scarring occurs to the gastrointestinal motor plexus from from inflammation and injury. So when the gut gets severely, if you ever, um, you might want to Google like an image, type in enteric nervous system, E-N-T-E-R-I-C nervous system, and what you're going to see is these nerve roots, nerve bundles going all the way all across the gut lining, um, and then all the different smooth muscles of the gut and within the inner linings of the gut and chronic inflammation basically injures them. And the chronic inflammation injures them and part of the normal healing response against an injury inflammation is to cause scarring. So you actually get scar in scar tissue development in these nerve plexus from just inflammation to the nerves of the gut over a period of time. That's why uncontrolled celiac disease, um, chronic ulcerative colitis, or chronic Crohn's, uh, just any kind of chronic inflammatory gastrointestinal condition, one of the worst outcomes is that they damage these nerve plexus and then end up with SIBO. Okay. And also, if you have moderate early SIBO, mm-hmm. um, you have to uh, uh, realize that if you don't figure out the cause and get over it, like you could be da- having this damaging nerve plexus progress to the point where you end up with severe malabsorption syndrome and you end up with map. Diet just to be able to function without any side effects. Okay. Um, so. Oh, by the way, Susan posted the article you saw on an article we wrote at Dr. K News on, on vagus nerve activation and stimulation. So we also have an article on our website, drknews.com. Okay, so speaking
0: to the in, um, nerve plexus, can you then can you eventually heal the nerve plexus if it's been damaged from years of SIBO? So. Yeah.
2: So this is, you know, um, maybe, right. Uh, it's possible. So I don't want to like say there's no hope or, but if you really do have SIBO, your nerve plexus have significant injury. If you don't follow a five nap diet, you're going to have some serious health problems. So, so that is very real. And if you see ever these symptoms go in deeper and see what the cause is. So the whole field of neuroplasticity is, is an area of, of, um, you know, great hope for everyone that has either neurodegeneration, brain injury, or even SIBO. The ability to activate nerves to then um, cause them to grow and branch out is what you're hoping for. And this is why vagal exercises can be can be really important. Uh, so you can check out the article, Dr. K. News, about vagal exercises. We talked about gargling, so which you just gargle with water all the time, and, and doing those consistently and aggressively for a period of time. May have the potential to activate those nerve plexus, which you may not get uh, in other ways. So you're, the best scenario would be you do a lot of vagal exercises, which promotes plasticity and growth of nerves and the nerve plexus in the gut to 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 deal with those issues. Um, with any kind of, but here's the reality: when it's neurodegenerative, you're always dealing with is the neurodegeneration, neurodestruction happening faster than you're developing plasticity or slower. So if you can slow down the mechanism of gut inflammation and change the inflammatory response in the gut and do, let's say, vagal activity, you may start to see changes in your motility because the rate of regeneration of those nerve plexus is faster than the amount of destruction. But if the inflammation is constant, it's not being addressed, it's, it's not being managed, and you're getting some plastics with regular exercises, it's never enough for you to notice any changes because the degree of destruction is greater than the degree of plasticity. So those are things to understand about how these things work.
0: Okay. Um, there's a few questions combined. The FODMAP diet is so limiting. Yes. Do, you, how long, do you have to stay on it forever? I know you're answering it, but I think you need yeah. to reiterate that. Sure. And some people are saying, no, it's too limiting, which makes you sicker.
2: Right. So there's some truth. Well, there's there's some issues with both of those. Um well, first of all, yes, if you're on a FODMAP diet, you're not in the ideal diet because you're limiting your food with lots of fruits and vegetables that your gut needs. Right. Okay. Um, first of all, make sure you get diagnosed properly. So again, you may not be diagnosed properly and you're doing FODMAP and you really just have like hypochorhedrians and enzyme deficiencies or gallbladder issue. Okay. So that's number one. Mm A FODMAP diet is a serious health choice because you are now on a diet that significantly restricts the diversity of vegetables and fruits. It's nothing to be taken lightly. It's a big deal. However, the mechanism of fermentation and inflammation caused by it is much worse. If you truly have injury to the gut and nerve plexus and the only way you get relief is with a FODMAP diet, um, it's important to do so. Uh, if you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and you think you want to support your microbiome and continue to eat foods that cause fermentation, distension, and bloating, you may further destroy the tight junction of the gut. You cause further inflammation. And This is why like diagnosis is is important. Like this is uh, serious. You know, like I know in forums people throw around SIBO all the time and mast cell activation syndrome and all these things, uh, and then people don't really know how to interpret it all. Um, and this is also why we put together our GI gut. Uh, Program because the internet is 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 has all the stuff on there. People on forums have no idea what they're talking about. (laughs) So many people (laughs) on forums, (laughs) many people on forums, no idea what they're talking about, and this whole thing is perpetuated. And then just it's like misinformation, and there isn't a clear thought process, and so forth. So, so the best way to answer this is, VODMAP diet has a significant. Issue with your gut is that you lose some degree of microbiome diversity. The only kind of compensate for that is to take some short chain fatty acids and so forth. So make sure you really need to be on a five map diet, and that is the right diagnosis. But if you truly have um, a a, a significant change in nerve plexus from injury, Mm -hmm. if you don't follow the five map diet, you can end up with some serious health problems. So both, it's true. You you know you should diversify your diet. Yes, but if you have true injury to the nerve plexus, FODMAP is unfortunately the way to stay healthy.
0: Right. Yeah. But that's with having been diagnosed.
2: Make, make sure you have ruled out everything else and right. gone through all the steps.
0: I think people just generally That's
2: the key thing, thing too. Yeah. So here's the thing you should understand. Yeah. If a person doesn't have SIBO and they go on a FODMAP diet, yeah. they're going to go off sugars. They're going to feel better. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They're going to have some degree of energy. It doesn't mean that they necessarily have SIBO. Uh, and if they stay on a FODMAP diet forever, then they're going to lose microbiome diversity. So the key thing is is this really, is, or when you do a FODMAP diet, are you just getting rid of some of your bloating distension? Maybe because you, you have dysbiosis and, you know, eating sugar makes you bloated and distended. And when you're off sugar, you feel better. And maybe it's not FODMAP. The biggest clue for that is, um, Vegetables and fruits are not really an issue. It's just simple sugars and unhealthy foods. So, if it's really the unhealthy foods that are a problem. But if you're eating like cauliflower and you get severely distended or lettuce, uh, that's not dysbiosis. That is more likely FODMAP. So, don't, you got to understand that when you're doing the FODMAP diet, being off sugars <laughs> has an impact on the gut that may make you feel like you have FODMAP, but it's not really just being off, it's not really you have SIBO. you just off sugars, so your gut doesn't have all those things stimulating all these adverse bacteria that's causing dysbiosis. But if you're eating foods that have galactins that are healthy foods for you, um, like for example, we talk about broccoli, beets, cauliflower, lettuce, um, and those are high in fractal uh, uh, galactins. and you get severe bloating, and distension, then, then you really have to lean towards, you may actually have SIBO. So those are some things to really think about. Thank you for asking those questions, yeah. and uh, that's that's very good. It's a good, yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, Michael's asking, if a person tests positive for H. pylori, which may have led to SIBO with bloating, belching, whatever, um, with meals, would correcting H. pylori, do you correct H. pylori simultaneously with SIBO? And if, and would fixing H. pylori clear SIBO?
2: Yeah, so technically, if your small intestinal bacteria is with caused by not having enough hydrochloric acid, stomach acid to mm-hmm. change the environment of your small intestine, um, secondary H. pylori, uh, if you treat the H. pylori, um, you should you should fix the SIBO. <laughs> it may take a few weeks, but you should be able to notice a big difference. And you don't necessarily need to follow a um, FODMAP map diet. Uh, you may want to just you know treat the H. pylori with whatever treatment is appropriate for it, um, and then see those tests go negative. You may even want to start taking some hydrochloric acid. And by the time you start taking some hydrochloric acid and you have a negative h poly test, if that was the cause, all of your distension and bloating symptoms that are associated with SIBO should be, should be gone or dramatically reduced. Okay, Miriam, hi Miriam,
0: is asking, is there a questionnaire or something you recommend for a person to recognize they may have SIBO? Do you someone's
2: worried about something. Yeah, we have questionnaires in the gut health program that goes into all the different DIF dyes and all the different mechanisms. Um, but the main symptom of SIBO... Uh, that you would put on a questionnaire that would be the key takeaway would be bloating, distention, and gas from eating fiber, healthy foods, sugars. Mm -hmm. Not so much the sugars, but I think it's better to focus on just vegetables and fruits, especially high sugar fruits causing bloating and distention.
0: Okay. Um, I mean, like if
2: someone ate maple syrup with pancakes, uh, and then at a Snickers bar, you're going to expect bloating and distention. That's pretty normal. <laughs> it's a high amount of uh, sugar, fructose load to the gut that is going to change the environment of the gut. But if eating cauliflower, beets, salad is causing distention, that's that's inappropriate.
0: Okay. John is saying she has a certain um, butyrate product, and it says to take three times per day. Can someone with a bad gut take more than yes. three times
2: a day? Yeah. For, with butyrate, you want to experiment um, – Butyrate is, is not based on your age or your body weight or your symptoms. It's one of those supplements where you should experiment and see what the right dose is for you. Um, they're just short-chain fatty acids. You're not going to, you know, you can you can take quite a bit of them and have no problems at all. Most likely won't have any problems even with a high dose, ex- except if you take too much, you may, like, just have your bowel change and, and have some issues with that. But uh, you should experiment with the dose and figure out what works best for you. There's usually, there's usually a point where you notice taking more, maybe three three a meal three times a day may be better for you than just three times a day. And But taking taking it four times a day or taking five capsules three times a day is, is not really different than taking three three times a day. So that's how you figure out your dose. You'll have to experiment and uh, see what works best for you.
0: Okay. Okay. Um... Can you talk about
2: the elemental diet? the L no I really don't have it's not something I incorporate so okay. how much count okay and um Lisa,
0: does fasting help?
2: Yes, thank you for bringing that up so fasting can be a big big thing uh when it comes to sibo so fasting and it you can do different types of fasting, but let's just there's basically long term fasting, which is more than three days and then intermittent fasting, which is um, you can do it every other day. You can do it two days on. You can do a three day fast. You can do time restricted feeding where you fast for 18 hours, eat for six hours. Um, most common way uh, people do intermittent fasting is with time restricted feeding. And the most common time restricted feeding is what's called an 18 6 program where you fast for 18 hours and eat for six. So you basically may eat at two o'clock. Till eight o'clock, and then coffee and tea are permitted during the intermittent fasting period. So, like you can wake up in the morning, have coffee, uh, and then wait, and then wait till two, and then eat, and then you can eat all the way up till eight. That would be a typical intermittent fasting approach. But intermittent fasting turns on genes that help with uh, uh, nerve growth and have an anti-inflammatory effect of the nervous system, and including the enteric nervous system. So. Uh, it's, a, it's a really good idea to include in your protocol with SIBO, not only uh, a FODMAP diet, vagal exercises, but intermittent fasting. And actually, the last part of the gut health course we put together, I have a whole section on intermittent fasting because it does impact many, many gastrointestinal conditions, and SIBO is one of them. Okay, so a
0: lot of questions on the veggie mash. Um, I'll just combine some. Okay. Can you use dried veggies, freeze-dried? Like, yes, raw, better, it's cooked better. Like, a lot of
2: yeah, so with the veggie mashup, you can use dried veggies or raw veggies as long as you get the fiber. All you need is the fiber. If you get the fiber, you're good. Um, so that's what you're after. So, you can use dried or regular veggies and still get the benefits.
0: Okay, Elena has a super simple question. Okay, can you please explain the connection between hypothyroidism and SIBO? Yes, I'm
2: being so it's super simple. Well, <laughs> hypothyroidism. Um, so thyroid hormones bind to the vagal motor complex and activate it and thyroid hormones bind to the um, nerve plex receptors to cause smooth muscle contraction. So if someone's hypothyroid and the body, the thyroid gland isn't working well enough to produce thyroid hormones, there's less activation of the vagal motor nuclei and there's less activation of the gut nerve plexes. And with that lack of activation of the gut nerve plexus, there's decreased motility, so these the valves of the gut are not contracting, so bacteria can go from the large intestine to the small intestine, or, or the valve itself, between the small and large intestine, the o valve is not working, so, it can, so you can get some of these, these, these patterns. Um, and actually, and, and so as soon as someone's hypothyroid, they go on thyroid replacement, they feel a lot better. And one of the most common symptoms of undiagnosed hypothyroidism is just chronic constipation and you can add SIBO on on top of that. So thyroid hormones are critical in activating um, the nerve plexus, because they bind to the nerve plex receptors in the gut and throughout the brain stem are stimulated by thyroid hormones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um,
0: For the, to activate the vagus, how long do you gargle? Should you gargle? Yeah,
2: so when you're doing the gargling exercises with the vagus, basically you want to take like a large glass of water and then uh just take a sip and then gargle for as long as you can and then swallow or spit it out and then you might it may take you i don't know a dozen gargling to finish an entire glass of water and you can do that several times a day uh one time a day is okay three times a day is better you know uh but you really um want to gargle as long as you can and you want to gargle as aggressively as you can and ho- and you want to gargle to the point so aggressive that you even have some tearing that's that would be nice um, but that's the basics of gargling
0: so why do you want tearing? What's
2: that? Oh the tearing so when you when you're looking at the, the vagus the, the vagus nerve is right directly um, next to what's called the superior inferior salivatory nuclei and these are the nuclei that cause saliva production and tearing and uh, when you activate one, phylogenetically activate the other ones, so you, so you know you're really hitting that brainstem area. Now people that have some significant loss of function, they they can gargle as aggressively as they want. They won't get any tearing. <laughs> and then once they start to activate that, that center over and over again, they'll start to notice they're getting tearing, which is a good sign that they're actually activating their brainstem more effectively and their body's responding. So. Um, that's where the tearing comes in. Okay, what's, last question. Oh, well, two more. What's, two more.
0: What's tearing? Tearing? Yes, you're
2: not. Eyes crying. Okay, there you go. <laughs> sorry, I <started> words
0: <laughs> That's okay. We're like what? Okay. Um, this is even actually. D e oh shucks. Ah, ah, ah. Okay, so a couple of people are talking about fasting, and yeah. they're saying I'm worried that if I fast. My blood sugar will drop
2: and I'll strain my adrenals. Oh, yeah, sure.
0: I get attacks. Can you please address that?
2: Yes, we actually did a talk on this. I was going to
0: say, the whole.
2: Um, yeah. If you look at our library, uh, past talks, we did a talk on. in fasting? I think it was in fasting. I think it was. Yeah, in yeah. fasting, yeah. So if, if you have hypoglycemia you, you and you have a tendency to have your blood sugar drop, you definitely don't want to jump into in fasting. Right. You will definitely get worse and crash. So the best scenario in those cases is to actually. Um, um, get in, Go into a ketogenic diet first, and then stay in ketogenic diet for probably six to eight weeks and get what's called keto-adapted. So your body gets efficient using fats instead of sugar for energy. And how you know you're getting keto-adapted is, when you're eating a ketogenic diet, somewhere around the fourth week, sixth week, seventh week, you're just not hungry. You wake up in the morning, and going to two o'clock, to do an 18 hour fast just happens on its own. So um, that might be the the only way to really get into intermittent fasting if you have hypoglycemia patterns. So you have to kind of shift your metabolism into um, a keto adapted state by, by following a ketogenic diet for a few weeks and then you can do intermittent fasting. And then once your body gets keto adapted, you may not have to stay in a ketogenic diet and you can still do the intermittent fasting but your body is more efficient doing it and you may you may need to have still have high healthy fats in order to do it, even though you're not in full ketosis. So, um, that's how we talk. We talk about the more in that, uh, talk we did on intermittent fasting, but that's the basic concept. Okay. okay. Um, okay. I think that's it. Thank yeah. you everyone for joining us. Uh, please check out our gut health sub the puzzle at Dr. drknews.com. uh, sign up to get, uh, the information, uh, about the course. And we'll have, uh, discounts and, and uh, promotional items to give away for people that signed up early and uh, thank you for joining us and uh, we'll, have an, we'll have some gut related topics the next few weeks as we um, promote our new course thank you so much
1: you can find all of this information and more at drknews.com podcast there you'll find the show notes readings and links related to this episode You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their health care professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.